It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Alan Dershowitz, why we have electile dysfunction. You know, I used to teach a freshman seminar at Harvard. I would start the class by saying, every idea you've come to Harvard with, I will attack. Every single one of them. But my job is to shake you up, make you reconsider every idea. There are no safe spaces in this classroom. I think centrist liberals and centrist conservatives have to get together and take back the center and stop the alt-right from taking over the Republican Party and the alt-left from taking over the Democratic Party. It's so important to distinguish liberalism. I am a liberal, a proud liberal. I was born a liberal. I will die a liberal. I will always be a liberal. I hate the hard left. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, this is shaping up to be the strangest presidential election of our lifetimes. Yeah, <laughs> on the Democratic side, we have an establishment candidate who isn't well-liked by many in her party. And on the other side, Donald Trump, a populist who pretty much won the nomination in a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. So we have two candidates who are viewed negatively by large portions of the electorate. And an amazing number of people say they don't want to vote for either one of them. So to help sort that out, we're joined today by someone who has been observing and analyzing American politics for more than 50 years. We're taping the show today in the Manhattan home of Professor Alan Dershowitz, emeritus professor of law at Harvard, one of the country's leading defenders of civil liberties, and the author of more than, I love this, a thousand articles over the course of his career. Alan Dershowitz has just published his 35th book, which is called, rather wittily, Electile Dysfunction, a Guide for Unaroused Voters. And it looks at the rise of political extremism around the world and offers some guidance on looking at this forthcoming 2016 election. So, Professor Dershowitz, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Well, thanks. You know, I just turned 78 years old. And when you get to be my age, it's much harder to get aroused about candidates <laughs> because I'm used to great candidates. And uh, in recent years, I think we've seen in the minds of many a diminution in the quality of the choice that we have in an election. And at the same time, it's not a lack of passion in a sense, because what you talk about in the book is this deepening divide between the left and the right, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. That's right. There's plenty of passion, but the passion tends to be negative. Take, for example, the passion 
surrounding the Sanders candidacy. It wasn't for this 70-something-year-old gray-haired Jewish guy from Brooklyn. Uh, He's not the kind of guy to arouse passions. It was that he was an alternative, that he was something different, that he was the non-Hillary Clinton. And I think the same thing is true of Trump. Um, He was different. He was unpredictable. He was somebody who gave some people hope that maybe things won't be the same. The irony is that, and this is a hard statement to make, things are not bad. (laughs) They're not as bad as the passionate haters say it is. The the poor in America are better off than they used to be. Um, Take, for example, Black Lives Matter. The number of African Americans who were shot by the police unjustifiably has gone down dramatically since 1995 when I was involved in the O.J. Simpson case and the Rodney King case. So things have improved, but the perception out there, maybe because of the social media, is that they can't get any worse. I'm reminded of the definition of an optimist and a pessimist in Israel. An Israel pessimist is somebody who says things are so bad they can't possibly get any worse. An optimist says, yes, they can. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think everybody thinks things are getting worse, and they're not. Where is this coming from? I think it's coming from the social media. It's coming from the fact, take, for example, Black Lives Matter. Many more African Americans were shot in the 70s, 80s, 90s, but we didn't see it on TV. We didn't have pervasive video records. Now it goes viral. Young person sees three or four of them in a month, and he says, this is the worst time it, in history. Epi- it looks like an epidemic. Right. Well, it's really interesting because it reminds me of the end of the Jim Crow South in the 1960s when for the first time Americans were watching on their television screens uh, young African-Americans being hosed by Bull Connor's police mm-hmm. in Alabama. Yeah. And the, the, the irony, and I think this is something that goes throughout history, when things get better, they often seem to get worse because their expectations rise. And things are getting better, but they're not getting better fast enough. And they're not getting better enough. I have leftist friends who are going to vote for Donald Trump. Their argument is, let's get the worst possible right-wing Republican candidate elected, and the revolution will come more quickly. I think Susan Sarandon said that. And the myth is that this is the result of liberalism. It's so important to distinguish liberalism. I am a liberal, a proud liberal. I was born a liberal. I will die a liberal. I will always be a liberal. I hate the hard left. They are my great enemies, much more than the center conservatives are. And the hard left is not just more liberal or more better than the liberal center. They're very different. They call themselves progressives, but many of them are repressives and regressives. They're Stalinists. They want to stop academic freedom on university campuses. And so I think centrist liberals and centrist conservatives have to get together and take back the center. You say the world's got more extreme. How and why? Well, first of all, after the Second World War, we saw the vices of extremism. We rejected Stalinism on the left. We rejected fascism on the right. And we moved toward the center. There was a kind of moratorium on extremism. And that moratorium seems to have ended, and we forget the lessons of history, and people want immediate gratification. Immediate gratification is, give me a candidate who will give me everything I want now without having to compromise. That's very dangerous to democracy. So this is not just a phenomenon here in the U.S. I mean, in your book, you talk about some of the things that are happening 
In Europe, you see the rise of these nationalist ultra-right parties. In much of the Islamic world, you see a rise in Islamic fundamentalism or, mm -hmm. or extremism. Yeah, no, take Europe. I recently came back from a visit to Hungary and Poland and Slovakia and Austria. These look like fantastically successful, wonderful countries. But... They look on television and they see America, and it's even better in America. So there's dissatisfaction, and maybe nobody is respecting Poland the way they used to, or Russia the way they used to. So we need to become more nationalistic, and we're seeing that. And then you see the rise of the hard left in places like England, where Corbyn gets reelected. This is Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy the, the, Corbyn the, the Labor Party leader, leader very, the, very left-wing. And he's so far right. to the left, yeah. I don't think most people here in the U.S. recognize how out there he is. Well, he makes Sanders seem like a Republican, <laughs> and he has virtually guaranteed that Labor will not be competitive in the next national election. But apparently, many on the hard left are prepared to see that. But I'm afraid of what's going on in Europe today and what's going on in the United States may reflect a trend rather than a pendulum swing, a trend toward extremes, and we have to fight that. We are a centrist country. We thrive at the center. We've been lucky not to have strong communist parties, fascist parties. We should not allow the extremes to take over this country. Now, you've spent so much of your career on college campuses, yeah. and we see, you mentioned already, this, this rise of a certain kind of intolerance on campuses. What's going on? Well, there's always been a lot of intolerance on campuses. It used to come from the right when I was at Brooklyn College, literally across the river from where we're sitting. I remember McCarthyism. I remember there was a professor at Brooklyn College, a famous professor. His name is Eugene Scalia. Familiar name? His son became Justice Antonin Scalia. And he was one of the people who was pushing McCarthyism and trying to fire professors, disciplined students for expressing views that were unacceptable in those days. The religious right imposed censorship. Oh, you can't go to see movies that have sexual content. My God, what's it going to do to our morality? So the censorship came from the right, the intolerance from the right. Today it comes almost exclusively from the hard left, who just don't like different points of view. And they disguise it as trigger warnings. They don't want trigger warnings from their points of view being expressed. They don't want safe spaces to protect Christian kids on campus or Jewish kids on campus or conservative kids on campus. They just want safe spaces so that they can be protected on campus. Give us an example of that, of, of that extremism. Well, um, you just look at so many universities that have today begun to discipline students for telling a dirty joke Many speakers have been prevented from speaking on college campuses. Honorary degrees have been withdrawn because of protests. Courses can't be taught because it might offend a particular group. You know, I used to teach a freshman seminar at Harvard. I would start the class by saying, every idea you've come to Harvard with, I will attack. Every single one of them. But my job is to shake you up, make you reconsider every idea. There are no safe spaces in this classroom. That sounds great. But, but what if somebody is, is denigrated for being black, for instance? Well, I don't think that's part of academic freedom. You can't, as a teacher, call on a student and use the N-word or call on a woman student and use a negative word or a Jewish student. But... For example, one of my colleagues, Randy Kennedy, wrote a book with the N-word as the title of the book, 
and had a whole academic discipline on that word. Surely that should be permitted. And it can't be the rule that only a black person can use the word. A white person can't. That's not academic freedom. You can't have affirmative action within the classroom. So it has to be available for all. I taught a course with Steven Pinker at Harvard Law School called Taboo, in which we said we're going to deal with a subject that you can't talk about on college and university campuses. Students crowded into the class. We had eight, 900 students in the class because the vast majority of college students want to have their minds open. It's 10, 15, or 20% of the most vocal ones who want to shut down the... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary dialogue let's go back to when you were a young man yeah were you made to feel uncomfortable because you were jewish because there's no no question there was anti-semitism around yeah but we knew it we kind of expected it um we knew we shouldn't apply to jobs uh at certain companies that they wouldn't hire us that you couldn't move to certain neighborhoods uh that you couldn't go to certain colleges that there were uh there were quotas on certain colleges and remember It was at a time when we weren't as sensitive to equality. I grew up... But that wasn't okay, was it, though? It wasn't okay, but we didn't think we had the ability to fight back. So you began your academic career in the mid-60s. What was that world like compared to today? Well, today's a more interesting world. In in the 1960s, I was 25 years old, and I was standing up in front of these students, many of whom were older than me. Uh, But they thought of me as, you know, a god... Uh, They would never dream of calling me by my first name. I was the professor. It was such enormous respect for position. It made me uncomfortable. But the students all came to class dressed in ties and jackets. Everybody raised their hands. Nobody would be in any way disrespectful or impolite. But it was boring. Life is much more exciting today on university campuses, and in part because of the Extremism. Look, extremism has a role on the campus because people are allowed to test their ideas. It's when they leave the campus and bring extremist ideas to state and federal legislatures and to the White House or the Supreme Court that we have a problem. We talked about some of the extremists on college campuses. With your lifelong support of Israel, you've come in for a lot of criticism yourself. What's that like? Well, more than criticism, I've had to have armed guards accompany me at some universities. When I spoke at Johns Hopkins University, students walked out saying I was harassing them by refusing to state that Israel commits war crimes. In other words, 
I harass them by my silence. That's a new one even for me. So everywhere I go, I am booed, protested. They try to shut me down at the University of California. They try to shout me down. But I come from Brooklyn. I'm not going to be shouted down. I just outshouted them, and people stayed and listened to me. But there is an attempt to shut down liberal points of view on college campuses. Remember, the liberals are the greatest enemy of the hard left because we represent views that students and other people who are liberal accept, but we don't go to the extremes. So how do you deal with hecklers? How do you shout them down? Well, I just, I demand the opportunity to exercise my free speech. I allow them to heckle and boo, and uh, I say I'm going to stay as long as you want me to stay. I'll answer every single question. No one will be shut down. And I start by saying I want only the most critical questions first. I have one line. I usually say only critical questions on this line. No friendly questions. I prefer critical questions. I want to be asked the hardest questions. Now, you've made a case against extremism, but I feel that one of the things that doesn't happen enough in our politics is making the case for compromise, making the case for centrism. There's a wonderful paragraph in your book where you say liberals understand that the quest for truth is a never-ending process that you never get there necessarily well i want to change harvard's motto from veritas which means truth to nuance because that's what we're missing on university campuses truth is very scary because the right wing thinks they have it and why do they have to tolerate any dissent? The left wing thinks they have it. Why do they have to tolerate any dissent? The religious extremists think they have it. Why do you have to allow blasphemy? And liberals and conservatives, I think, jointly understand that truth is a question. You know, the Bible says, justice, justice, must you pursue, suggesting that you'll never get justice. The same thing is true with truth. It's a process. We aim for it, but we have to understand that, as Cromwell says, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, consider you may be wrong. That's the essence of academic freedom. You may be wrong. A little bit of humility seems to be so missing in both these extremes. You talk in the book about a left-wing political idea called intersectionality. Mm-hmm. I can imagine most people who aren't steeped in those kinds of politics or aren't on a college campus probably don't know what that yeah i I, I didn't know what it was and i didn't know what it was until not so long ago i start seeing it pop up at the democratic convention intersectionality matters and then i really started to study it (laughs) because obviously it became part of the sanderista campaign to move the democratic party to the hard left intersectionality is this nonsensical pseudo-academic doctrine that says We decide who are the oppressed people. The oppressed people are the politically correct oppressed people, transgendered people, gay people, African-American people, uh, women, and they're all oppressed by the same people. So intersectionality says you can't simply be an advocate of gay rights or an advocate of women's rights without also agreeing that the most oppressed people in the world today are the Palestinians who are oppressed by Zionists. And then there's also a kind of absolutist mentality on the right as well. On the right, you get the same thing. It started, uh, well, it started with McCarthyism when I was a kid. Um, Tea Party extremists, and now the alt-right, which is even more dangerous because it includes kind of neo-fascist, Klan, and other elements that had been marginalized but now seem to be flexing their muscles. Now, I want to be very clear about this. I do not believe Donald Trump is a racist. I do not believe he is uh, a bigot. I do not believe that he supports the alt-right. But the alt-right supports him, and he has not been willing sufficiently to cut 
them off and, and just say, to, I don't want any support. And just to be clear for people who don't follow all these with that level of nuance, the alt-right is a relatively new term that, that captures a lot of young, outspoken people on social media posting all kinds of ugly, often racist memes and a lot of trolling to try to get reactions. For a lot of people in the conservative movement, they've been horrified to see this, this ugliness kind of come out from under the rug and somehow be given permission to come out in the open yeah, where no, it I'm, wasn't before. But I'm glad you mentioned young people. Let me rail against young people for a minute on your show. <laughs> you know, everybody says, oh, the young people are so wonderful. Let's listen to them. Sure, let's, let's listen to the young people. Let's remember who brought Nazism to Germany, the young people. It was at uh, Munich and at Berlin University that the young people burned the books. Who was it that encouraged Stalinism in the Bolshevik Revolution? The young people. So let's not glorify all the young people. But there young, are examples uh, of the young fantastic. people doing great stuff. Look, but d- don't be an ageist. There's also example of old people doing great stuff. So there's nothing virtuous about youth by itself. If you're young, it means you probably have more energy. It means you're probably voting less frequently than anybody else and complaining more than anybody else. But... Let's understand that age is not a guarantee of virtue. What's the danger of of populism? Well, there are virtues and vices to populism. The major danger of populism is it circumvents our system of checks and balances. But we see that populism has resulted in some of the most dangerous leaders uh, in history. Also, populism is reserved only for men. The way populism works is, you know, usually macho guy, brags about his sexual exploits. Let me, an example I have in my book, Electile Dysfunction, is Edwin Edwards, who I actually represented. Uh, He was the governor of Louisiana. He ran against the head of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke, and he infamously bragged. He said, the only thing I have in common with David Duke is we're both wizards under the sheets. Yeah, can you imagine a woman, (laughs) imagine Angela Merkel boasting about her, her sexual exploits or, or, or Margaret Thatcher or Hillary okay. Clinton or Golda Meir. It's just not going to happen. Uh, Trump is willing to talk about the size of his fingers. He's willing to make all these sexual allusions. And does, does that put Hillary Clinton in a disadvantage? It does, because I think we want, quote, our women. I hate that term. Our women to be ladies. But we expect our men, boys will be boys. Now, we're a show about solutions. And in your book, you argue really passionately for people of goodwill to try to come back to the center, not to fall into the temptation to slide to one extreme or the other. What are some concrete steps that we can take to get there? Well, first of all, I think we have to change our electoral system. Uh, That's why I entitled my book, The Electile Dysfunction. We should not give the power we now give to a handful of states in the primary system, that results in extremists running and running successfully. There should be one national primary. It should be on June 15th or whatever, um, and every candidate should have to run, and then there should be a convention. The electoral process should be condensed to less than a year, six months would be even better. We are living in a constant electoral cycle, and it's unhealthy for democracy. You say that voters should do something, and that's put a checklist 
uh, in front of themselves and ask themselves some questions. Let's go down a few of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think is the most important question that a voter should ask herself? Well, I think for this election, because we're seeing such enormous instability around the world, for me, the first question is who will bring stability not only to America, but to the world? Who will be a stabilizing influence? Who will bring the world closer to the center? And that's why I'm strongly supporting Hillary Clinton in this election, because she is a centrist candidate. What are some of the other questions that voters should ask themselves? Well, I think obviously all voters are concerned about the economy. And uh, again, I think a Trump election will be as unpredictable economically as the Brexit victory in England was. So I don't know what will happen if Trump gets elected, but it could have a devastating effect on markets around the world. That's at least one possibility. Um, I see no indication that he would bring more jobs to people in this country. He's not going to build a wall. And if he were to build a wall, what would happen to all the economies in the Southwest that rely on labor from Mexico? The media has come in for a lot of criticism in this campaign. In some ways, they've shown a weakness for the populist urge. What can the media do better? Well, first of all, the media is the big beneficiary of the American electoral system. They make a fortune on elections. Um, In most countries of the world, the media can't make that kind of money on elections. They are constrained. Uh, There are limits on how much you can spend. Also, in some parts of the world, the media must give free time to candidates. I'd like to see that change. The media plays too great a role in the election in the United States of America. I'd like to see their role reduced and reduced by economic incentives or disincentives. Uh, Right now, they have several goals. One, they want to keep every race a contest. They want to make every race close because otherwise people don't listen. And so we have to get the media out of the process of benefiting from doing certain things during an election. Anything else that you feel we should be doing better in our politics? Well, the two-party system has served us well in this country, but I would make one change. I would have, say, five or six presidential debates between the two major candidates, and I would allow the two or three leading third-party candidates to participate in the first of the debates, just the first. And after that, they would have to reach a threshold, say, of 20% to participate in any of the others. I would then get rid of the vice presidential debate. I don't think that they serve any interest and instead have yet an additional presidential debate. You've certainly hinted that the choice of candidates can often be between bad or worse. Have you ever voted for bad? Uh, I think I've always voted for uh, candidates with whom I have disagreed in some fundamental way. I've never had a perfect candidate. Uh, I remember my first election, Kennedy. Could I really vote for Joseph Kennedy's son? I had a hard time. And finally, I watched the debate and I pulled the lever and I was thrilled and became a close friend of Ted Kennedy over the years. Um, I had a hard time voting for Clinton the first time, Um, but he became, in my view, a great president. I have to tell you, Hillary Clinton is as close to a good candidate as I'm going to vote for. I've known her for years, and I think of her as honest and honorable and very smart and very decent. And yet of all the candidates that I've had an opportunity to vote for, she's probably the least popular among people who don't know her. It's a paradox for me.
Well, we could just go on all day. Yeah, we could. It's so much fun. <laughs> so much. Thank, Thank you. you for doing Thank this. You. It was fun for me, too. So, wow, what an invigorating <laughs> and just kind of inspiring interview. Yeah, I, I, I think that he's, there's so many points that, that Alan Dershowitz made, but one of them is the importance of compromise, the importance of agreeing to disagree, which I think is a, is a quality of democracy that distinguishes it from any other form of governance that perhaps, if we haven't lost, is certainly in danger uh, in our political discussion. I'm going to put it slightly differently. A lot of times people say, we need to be willing to compromise and make it sound like a negative thing. Everybody has to give up a lot. No. I think what's even more important than that is a type of tolerance where we accept to ourselves that there are people we might really disagree with on. They can still be good people. We don't have to kick them out of our university or out of our circle of friends. You don't have to agree with everybody on everything, but you do have to assume some goodwill on the part of people you you don't agree with and don't always be trying to vilify them. And what you see in these extremist movements that, that Professor Dershowitz talks about is they're highly motivated by creating huge groups of people that are just beyond the pale. Yeah, I, I, empathy is such an important quality in, in debate. And something that you mentioned, which I really agree with, is the, the importance of humility. Humility. That, I, mean, I don't have a monopoly on wisdom, and neither do you. And, and when it comes to making policy or, or figuring out who to vote for, you may not be right about everything. You need to be open to the fact that you, just like a good scientist, you need to be open to the fact that you could be wrong. What did you think about Alan Dershowitz's view on the media uh, in perhaps imposing certain carrots or sticks on their level of well, importance? Well, first important to point out that he is a civil libertarian, a huge advocate for the First Amendment. So I, I'm not interpreting those as we need some kind of government regulations to rein in the media. Right. So we'd have to think about how we could develop an approach to uh, to covering politics that that doesn't fall into this dysfunctional years long campaigns, the mass amounts of spending. I don't know how we do that. Yeah, I think one of the really big problems is the marketplace. In that, I've seen this in a control room. You get minute by minute ratings when you're doing a show, right. and when there's controversy, when there are clashes, when there's anger, ratings tend to go up, right, not right. down. And Whereas when you're having a calm, constructive... It's a good thing we're not on TV, uh, Richard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Conversation. The ratings aren't so great. Well, and you know, in a sense, uh, Trump kind of hacked that system. They all saw this. It wasn't just Fox. You know, I remember watching CNN way early, early days, even before the first primary. And they said, Trump's about to go live at a, you know, at an event in New Hampshire. And we'll we'll go live to him the minute he comes on stage. It's like, why? You wouldn't do that for any other candidate. They were doing it because it made good business sense for them. He hijacked. In a sense, he hijacked the system. I think some of the change could come from within. And a plug here for Solutions Journalism, the Solutions Journalism Network that we've been part of, and that is putting that front and center in newsroom cultures, the idea that we not only have to look at what's wrong, we have to try and imagine what might be right. And we also have done a podcast with All Sides Now, another group that tries to help people get a more diverse look at how different opinions are presented. But I would say my biggest takeaway from this interview is just something that you don't often hear. 
passion for the center, passion for being balanced, for keeping an open mind. How do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music's by Lou Stravinsky. Our website is howdowefixit.me. And the show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at daviescontent.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.